You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have Barnes Carr to talk to us about the Lenin plot. So, all I have to say is, how come they haven't made a movie out of this yet? It's so, it's such a... That's what my uh, agent asked me. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's... uh... He's exploring all options, TV, movies. Probably TV would be a better one. They would do a documentary. So Barnes, can you tell our audience a little bit about you? What do you do and what made you write this book? Well, my background is in journalism. I worked for years as a reporter, sometimes photographer and editor in uh, Mississippi, Memphis, Uh, Boston, Montreal, New York, Washington, and New Orleans. Uh, I left journalism and went to work as executive producer for WRNO Worldwide, a uh, commercial shortwave station in New Orleans, uh, broadcasting New Orleans jazz and R&B to the Soviet Union in the uh, twilight years of communism. and. I found out about the Lenin plot when I was a student at Tulane. I did some checking around, uh, got a few things of interest, and kind of put it in the back of my mind because I had other projects, family projects I had to pursue. And I got back to work on it about uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, When I first started doing research, the uh, internet was uh, fairly crude. Uh, there wasn't much on there. So I relied on uh, bound volumes of um, the London Times, the, uh, a French newsweekly called L'Illustration, and an American uh, newsweekly called the Literary Digest. Uh, the name is a little bit misleading. It was mostly a, a news magazine. And then after that, I started, I reached out to um, libraries, archives, I got copies of uh, congressional testimony, official documents. University of Michigan and the National Archives and the Library of Congress were my biggest contributors. I can't say enough about them. They were great. Oh, cool. That was my alma mater. (laughs) That's what I thought, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so for the audience, they should know Lenin by now because I'm a big fan of Lenin. Lenin, like I read everything of his and... This is in 1917, there was the czar abdicating in April. But what happened is that there was this Kerensky government that was kind of weak, for lack of a better word. And then in October of 1917, the Bolsheviks came and took power. Mm -hmm. And but this was in the middle of World War One. So now all the allies were upset that Russia was going to leave uh, World War One, so um, they start hatched this plot. You mentioned two people: Xenophone de Blumenthal and Dewitt Clinton Pohl. Tell me how the plot got started from the White House onto this man named Xenophone de Blumenthal. <laughs> okay, okay, let's go back a little bit. Um, now, the Russian Revolution, the second one, occurred in February of 1917. Yes, in July the Bolsheviks attempted their first coup in Petrograd. 
and it failed. Well, I mean, I wouldn't call it, I'm just going to slightly push back because I don't know if it's a coup when there's like such a large majority supporting it. The Bolsheviks were a very small, noisy uh, political party, and they managed to uh, knock off the government in Petrograd with just uh, oh, a few hundred Red Guards. That goes in, I go into that in detail in the book as witnessed by several members of the uh, Bolshevik party, including Trotsky. They said it was a very quiet, Petrograd slept through the whole thing. Yes, actually, that's exactly what, um, what's his name? The guy who wrote 10 Days That Shook the Earth? Shook the J- World, yeah. Yes, what's his name? I can't remember. John Reed. He mentioned the same thing. When did this plot get hatched from the embassy? Well, the, you mean the Lenin plot? Yeah. And, um, well, let's go back a little bit again. In July of 1917, the United States and Italy and uh, France and uh, England became very concerned about what was happening over there. So in July of 1917, Secretary of State Lansing met with Colonel William Wiseman. They met and talked about opening up some kind of intelligence operations in uh, Russia. They didn't like Kerensky, and they were, didn't like, definitely didn't like Lenin. So Lansing talked to Wiseman, and then Lansing went back and talked to uh, President Wilson. So they were knocking around all sorts of ideas. But the issue became critical after the Bolshevik coup in October 1917. Lenin announced that he was going to, he was going to take Russia out of the war. Now, this was alarming to the Allies because it would allow Germany to move divisions over to the Western Front, which was the main battleground of the war. So they had to do something. The provisional government under Kerensky had freed all political prisoners, gave them amnesty. Lenin was having none of that. So in December 1917, uh, Lansing told Wilson, we've got to install an Allied-friendly military dictatorship in Russia and get the country back in the war. And a few days later, he sent Wilson another note saying, I propose to contact France and uh, England and set up a money laundering operation where we'll send military aid to Britain and France, and they will launder the funds to finance a coup against Lenin. And Wilson replied, quote, this has my entire approval. So the next step was the State Department sent DeWitt Clinton Poole, who at that time was a consul at the Moscow consulate. They sent him down to the Don region to uh, interview several Cossack generals about the possibility of marching on Moscow and Petrograd and staging a coup and installing an Allied-friendly dictatorship. Well, Poole went down there and talked to these generals. He didn't get very far because he found that they were all antagonistic toward one another. And he was convinced that uh, they couldn't mount a unified coup against the Bolsheviks. They were just too disorganized, too uh, hateful toward one another. So he left without, a, without getting very far. But the Lenin plot merely segged into 1918. And uh, about the same time, Wilson began preparations for an invasion of Russia, along with uh, France. That's Operation Archangel, right? 
uh, I never saw any reference to a particular code name or operation name for it. The first landing was at uh, Murmansk in March of 1918. A multinational force of United States, or Britain, France, and Italy landed on March the 6th, 1918 in Murmansk. And the U.S. joined two days later. That was the first invasion of Russia. Now, the Murmansk had a Soviet, but they were not connected with the Moscow Soviet. Murmansk welcomed the invasion because it would protect them from the Germans who were next door in Finland. So throughout 1918, Wilson was most concerned with the military side of the political plot. Lansing was responsible for the political side, that is, the removal of Lenin, but not unexpectedly. Official documents tend to kind of peter out in 1918 regarding what was going on in Moscow. I don't know whether the, this was a top secret operation. So a lot of the dialogue about the plot was verbal. They talked about things and they probably didn't keep notes. And if they did, the notes have either been lost or just simply not, not kept by the State Department. So there's kind of a, a blank space there. But the, uh, but the dialogue on the plot in London is picked up by Poole, DeWitt Clinton Poole, who becomes Consul General in Moscow. And he's working with uh, Ambassador David Francis, along with uh, British and French diplomats to stage a coup in Moscow and get rid of Lemon. They wanted to, they just wanted him gone by any means necessary. Arrest him, shoot him, hang him, whatever. And that's the, that's the, the bare bones of the plot. Now the British, the French were involved early on. French investors had lost 13 billion francs of military assistance when the Bolsheviks took over. Lenin just refused to pay foreign debts. Quick question. So mm-hmm. the Tsar and the French had an agreement, and then after the Bolsheviks took over, they broke the agreement, right? Mm, well, the Tsar's army, the Imperial Russian, Russian army, operated with the uh, cooperation and assistance of the French and the Italians and the, the British. France and uh, Britain sent military advisors to Russia to help out the Russian Imperial Army. So it was, it was a back and forth. They were mutually supportive. So now the French and the British were also interested because they were worried that it would make Germany stronger if they didn't have an Eastern front, right? Right, right. Okay. That, was the, that, was the, that was the whole military concern. And it, and it did happen. The Germans moved divisions over to the West and almost defeated the Allies. And uh, I think it was called Kaiserschlacht, something like that, the Kaiser's Battle. It was a huge battle on the Western Front in uh, March of 1918, and the Allies were almost defeated. So their concerns were valid. Then the plot gets really confusing with terms of like, so there's two parts of it. There's a military aspect, and then there's the espionage civilian aspect, right? The political, right. Yes. In Moscow. Um, So who is the quote-unquote mole that they choose that the Allies choose to begin this plot? <laughs> well, the, the Allies, I don't know about moles. Um, I thought they sent somebody from Chicago. Um, sorry if I oh, used the wrong, oh, yeah. wrong word. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, right. Uh, that was uh, Xenophon de Blumenthal Kalamantiano. He was born in Russia and grew up in the uh, United States. He attended the University of Chicago, was a track star, went back to Russia as a businessman, was very successful. He was working for the J.I. Case Corporation in Racine, Wisconsin. He was selling uh, tractors and uh, automobiles and uh, farm machinery in Russia for years, I think starting around 1915. So he was a successful businessman, and he was also patriotic toward America. He was, very, he was a dyed-in-the-wool American. He supported the Allied cause in the war. And in late 1917 or early 1918, his personnel record's kind of vague on that. He became a street operative, that is, an, an agent, a spy, for the consulate in Moscow under DeWitt Clinton Poole. Kalamantiano was Poole's main man when it came to hiring assets, opening safe houses, organizing nets. Now, he installed a very, uh, Kalamantiano installed a very important mole right in the middle of Red Army Communications Office. It was a Latvian, and he was an anti-communist, secretly anti-communist, and he was uh, one of their main sources of information. He would uh, make copies of Red Army uh, military documents and give them to uh, Kalamantiano and also Sidney Riley, and they passed them on to the, the British and the French and the Italian uh, consulates, and also uh, they got back to Washington and, and London and uh, Paris. Now, Sidney Riley was, a, was one of the real characters in this, in this whole plot. He was a, a Russian, I would say, adventurer. He had a reputation for working all sides. And the Secret Intelligence Service in London hired Sidney. It was kind of a case of, let's hold our nose and hire this man. He was a known killer, thief. He had a real interesting background. I just wanted to clarify, Sidney Riley is a British agent, right? Right. Okay. Now, he was sent to uh, Russia in, I believe, May of 1918. His instructions were limited. The Secret Intelligence Service, which at that time was called MI1C and later MI6, told Riley just to pop in, have a look-see, size up the situation, then get out. But once Sidney got in, he decided that the Bolsheviks were ripe for a coup. So he joined the Allied plot. Now, there was another British agent named uh, Bruce Lockhart. Bruce had been in Russia off and on since 1912. He was recalled to London in 1917. The story was Whitehall was upset because he was having an affair, cheating on his wife. But I think what they were really concerned with was that he was having an affair with a Russian woman who may have had ties to the Bolsheviks, and that would uh, have presented a security problem. So they, with, so they uh, called Bruce back to London, gave him a dressing down, had him shuffling papers for a while. But then things got worse in, in Russia, and he was sent back to Russia with instructions in January 1918, with instructions to contact the Bolsheviks and try to get them back in the war. Now he did so. He contacted uh, Lenin and Trotsky, and he was assisted by uh, Raymond Robbins, an American Red Cross colonel who was running his own private spy service in Russia. He was said to be one of the 
It was said to be one of the best spy services in Russia. So Bruce Lockhart and Raymond Robbins contacted Lenin and Trotsky and tried to get them back in the war, and it didn't work out. The Bolsheviks didn't, didn't like the Allies. They didn't trust them. They didn't have anything to do with them. Earlier, the Germans had bankrolled the Bolsheviks, and they had a deal with Lenin that if he could stage a coup and overthrow the provisional government and take control of the revolution, that would be his payback for the money that they gave him. And that's been documented in, in several places. One was called the Sisson documents. That was a collection of, of documents uh, that the State Department collected in Russia in 1917 from the provisional government. Some of those documents were, were uh, considered to be forgeries, so you can't really trust everything that's in there. However, the documents that uh, describe Germany's payments to the Bolsheviks are in the National Archives in Washington. They were seized in 1945 in Berlin. They are the archives of the German Foreign Ministry. They're in RG242, microfilm publication T322, and T149. They uh, describe in detail all the money that uh, Berlin sent the Bolsheviks. And it started back in 1915, but it really picked up in uh, 1917, around the time of the, of the uh, February Revolution. So Lenin had this deal with, with Germany, and uh, he was going to carry that out to, you know, take Russia out of the war. And that's what really alarmed the Allies. It really got them moving. Okay, so in your book, you also mention France sending in somebody to further complicate this plot, I guess. Uh, do you want to elaborate? Well, the, the French, the French thought, it, thought it was further assisting the plot. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the French, the main French involved with Calamantiano and DeWitt Poole were Joseph Nulons, who was the ambassador to Russia, General Jean Laverne, who was chief of the French military mission, Joseph Fernand Renard, who was constable in Moscow, and Calamantiano's main street associates, French associates, seemed to be Marshal Marie Henri de Vertemont, and listen to this name, Charles Adolphe Faupas Bidet. <laughs> He was from the Surete. He had worked the case against Matahari. Now, those are the main French operatives who uh, assisted Poole, Calamantiano, Sidney Riley, and uh, Bruce Lockhart. Okay, the one thing that really amuses me is, I think, I'm not sure if I'm going out of the timeline. Okay, in Murmansk, they had a meeting, and then all these Western forces came in, and then they thought they'd walk into Moscow to simply arrest Lenin, which is very, um, it seems a little, for lack of a better word, a little harebrained. <laughs> well, yes, as it, turned, as it turned out, it was. You're absolutely right. The landing in Murmansk, so far as Wilson was concerned, ostensibly was to protect Allied supplies that were stored there and the same thing in Archangel. But Wilson made the mistake of putting U.S. forces under British command. And as soon as these 
French and uh, American forces landed in uh, Murmansk and Archangel, the British commanders immediately sent them out to fight the Red Army. So it was a, it was a war from the very beginning. And the British plan was to eventually move south on railroads going south from uh, Murmansk and Archangel that would take an Allied invasion force directly to Petrograd and Moscow. That was the invasion plan. And at some point, they were going to link up with uh, Admiral Kolchak's forces from Siberia and the Czech Legion and Sabinkov's, Boris Sabinkov's force. Uh, Boris Sabinkov was another big uh, factor in the Lenin plot. Sabinkov had been a socialist revolutionary, and he got disgusted with them and left, and he formed his own private army, which is anti-communist. And uh, he joined the Allied, the Lenin plot. The French hired him to, to um, stage some um, uprising along the Volga River to clear the Volga for Allied ships that would move south toward uh, Moscow. Unfortunately, it didn't work. The French failed to land their forces at the uh, designated time, and Samenkov's forces were defeated. Nevertheless, Samenkov continued in the Lenin plot as an individual. He was, uh, most, he was the most infamous terrorist of the time, Boris Samenkov, which raises a question, a serious question about the legality of the whole thing, of the whole Lenin plot. Russia had, uh, Russia had not, we had not declared war on Russia. Russia was a former ally. Lenin had not plotted to invade the United States or Britain or France or Italy. He had not plotted to assassinate those leaders. So this whole Lenin plot, the invasion, the coup, the assassination, to me it had a certain odor of international terrorism to it on the part of the Allies. But then what I'm confused about is if the Allies were fighting World War I around that time, like how did they have those extra forces to also do like a second mini invasion of Russia? Well, that was the problem. They didn't have the necessary forces. Total Allied forces in the invasion were about 50,000. And they recruited about 22,000 uh, loyalist Russians. That is, those who were loyal to the, uh, to the provisional government and the Allies. So the total force was less than 100,000. It wasn't enough to do very much. To knock off Russia, I mean, Russia was a big place. It's still, it's still a big place. Uh, there are millions. Of, it was the second largest country in the world in population. To conquer Russia by an allied force, it would require two or three million troops. And even then, you'd have to hold power once you got it. I mean, what was to prevent the Russians from staging another revolution, this time against the allies? It was very tricky. They went in with an inadequate force and didn't get it very far. They got defeated. Allied forces were defeated and driven to the sea. Trotsky didn't want to annihilate the Allied forces. He just wanted to run them out of the country. He feared that if he killed all the Allied invaders, it would um, set off a, a massive Allied invasion from the West. Don't want to be called a trot online and get ice axes in your replies? Please go to historically.substack.com. Support our show by subscribing. You can check out our newsletters, 
and podcasts interviewing historians, journalists, and activists. Get a little left propaganda in your head to blot out the capitalist stuff. It's good for you. That's historically.substack.com. So what I'm still confused about is how the political and the military plot tie together. They tie together through ambassador to the U.S., Francis. He was, um, the U.S. embassy was moved to Balagda, which is just south of Archangel, to get it out of the, hand, to get it out of the hands of the Bolsheviks. And Francis and Nulans pretty well ran the plot from Balagda. They coordinated military and political aspects. The British didn't have an ambassador. He was recalled. That left Bruce Lockhart as the uh, prevailing British diplomat in Russia. So Francis and Nulans and, and also Poole, DeWitt Poole, those three were the ones who really coordinated the military and the political aspects of the Lenin plot. And so what happened next? How did the plot further assess? Uh, I mean, sorry, because like eventually there is an assassination attempt against Lenin. So how did that happen? Well, as it turned out, and I don't want to go into this into too much detail because I like to save a little stuff for the reader. But basically, the Lenin plot was infiltrated. Just like the, the Allies were infiltrating the Bolsheviks. There was a lot of double agents and triple agents involved. And one word got out what was happening, and uh, Lenin had the Cheka roll up the Lenin plot, that is, arrest all the plotters, all the Western plotters. And uh, that's what happened uh, to the plot itself. Now, Lenin was shot in August 1918 by a hardened socialist revolutionary terrorist named Fanny Kaplan. She shot Lenin twice, didn't kill him, but wounded him. And when she was arrested by the Cheka, they asked her why she did that. And she said, Lenin had stopped the legitimate Russian revolution and returned the country to old czarist ways of mass terror and executions. So in her, in her mind, Lenin had stopped the legitimate revolution and she was going to stop Lenin. So Savinkov enters again because when, uh, when um, Boris Savinkov wrote his memoirs, he told his translator that he, an Allied agent, had given Fanny Kaplan the gun she used to shoot Lenin. That is very interesting. So, like I said, I can see this being like a, either a dark comedy, because it was very mesmerizing. What is in the works for you next, I guess? Well, my agent has two novels of mine, one of which is a historical novel set during this period in revolutionary Russia. It's called Appointment in Moscow. He's uh, sending that around. And I also have a, I've written a political thriller based in uh, Washington, D.C. called Potomac Fever. It involves the murder, the new president of the United States on inaugural night poisons her husband because he threatens to blow the whistle on a dirty trick of hers that resulted in the suicide of her main opponent. It's called Potomac Fever. Now, once we get those done, I'm, I've got a, an idea I think I'm going to work next on probably a memoir of my years in the newspaper business, the news business, 
along with uh, interviews with uh, contemporary newsmen about the state of journalism in the world today. It would be really interesting to hear your perspective about that because I've wondered what is it that's different? Like I've asked somebody else, uh, another guest, the same question. He wrote something about the Silicon Valley because of the fastness of the news. Is it like sacrificing accuracy? Like how is it, how is the technology distorting news from way back in the day when you did it? I don't think this technology is distorting it. It's, uh, it's the owners and publishers. When I began as a reporter, you would never, never, never allow your political or religious views to be reflected in your reporting. You can't be completely objective, but you try to be fair, presenting both sides. And I pick up newspapers every day or, or, or I read news stories online or on the radio or on TV, and they all present one side of the story. Very, very seldom do they offer both sides of a story. Um, all balance has gone out. Most, most of the media now is, is very partisan. And I think the British have had an influence in that. Uh, British tabloid journalism. Very- oh, yeah. Like Rupert Murdoch's, like the sun. Yes, I see the influence now that I'm imagining the sun and not looking at some of the other... <laughs> Yes, sorry. Uh, um, but yeah, that makes so much sense now because private, like BBC is decent, but the private British newspapers, they can just, they, they just are very vile, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. This, it's, been, it's been going that way for a long time. In 1969, I was offered a job by the Washington Post and they flew me up to Washington for an interview. And, uh, you know, I went to the newsroom, and, and the first editor asked me what my politics were. And I said, well, you know, I don't, want to go, I don't really want to go into that. You know, that's, that's private information. All I can do is assure you that my politics will never influence my reporting. Well, he didn't like to hear that. So he sent me to see, to see another editor, and he thought he was going to be clever. He said, Barnes, how did you vote in the last election? And I said, I voted the American way. What's that, he said? By secret ballot. <laughs> that is pretty different from now. But I see how that can develop ex- extremes. But there's another phenomenon that bothers me more. For example, um, Sean Hannity, let's say, take him for example. He makes $30 million a year. But it's not that they're he, he, spending extra $30 million. They're taking it away from expensive investigative reporting for this one Sean Hannity. Exactly, yeah. The, um, the internet media, I think, has pretty well given up on thorough investigative journalism. Except they for want, us. Except yeah, for us. They, they want to pander to one side and draw them as their reader, as their audience. and. Everything else is kind of an afterthought. I, n- I never see any investigative journalism on, on television or the internet anymore. I don't see it at all. Well, uh, we are um, actually <laughs> launching one, but um, I agree with you. 
for example, like there are so many stories, like there's something going on at Disney and Amazon because of the COVID and you could, they could go ask the little people, Hey, little worker, um, how often do you like, like, are you getting paid or something like that? But they don't do that anymore. So now like, exactly. Yeah. yeah, because that's more expensive. So you only get what's easy to grab is what I, what I feel like. Exactly. Do you agree? Oh yeah, headline grabbers. And there's another there's another factor which has been um, on the scene for a long time. So much of the reporting is done from what they call the bubble, the New York Washington bubble. You don't see many news agencies going out to the heartland and talking to people, sitting down with them in, in the cafes and talking to them, going to their American Legion meetings or their NAACP meetings or going to their ball games or going to their churches. They just kind of give you their opinion from the bubble. Yeah, and I believe that's a consequence of the local news used to be a hundred different independent stations, but now, like for example, about all of them are owned by Sinclair. So again, you suck out jobs and what you have is somebody from the bubble feeding in because each station doesn't do their own distribution. They all go simulcast, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, the network news is almost, uh, it's almost the same. They cover, all the networks cover the same stories and usually from the same point of view. But the local stations do do, I think they, they do pretty well on local news. They, they, they cover the, the political scandals and the murders and the car wrecks and all that, you know. It's not very interesting beyond the, the local scene, but most TV stations are fairly aggressive. It's the newspapers that have kind of gotten complacent, I think. Yes, and it's, I, I believe it's because there used to be more independent newspapers that were not owned by one person, I guess. One exactly. Company. Yeah, exactly. When, when, when I went, first went into the news business, there were, there were two or three big chains. There was Scripps Howard. I worked for them in Boston and Memphis. There was Hearst, which was still a big West Coast chain. And uh, those are the two big ones. Uh, they owned a lot of newspapers, but most papers back then were owned by families, local families. There's also a shift from subscription-based versus advertising-based also, <laughs> right? Yeah. So what you described is a humongous problem and do you see any solutions with all your experience? Well, subscriptions, I think those are pretty well gone. Some newspapers are still healthy, so far as subscriptions. The Wall Street Journal is still over a million. The Houston Chronicle, which I don't really like particularly, they're pretty healthy. The LA Times is pretty healthy in subscriptions. But what newspapers are doing now is advertising readership as opposed to circulation. Those are not the same thing. Circulation is uh, certified by the uh, ABC, the Audit Bureau of Circulations. They tell you exactly how many paid subscriptions, paid sales a newspaper has. But readership is something different. Readership is based on the, on the uh, theory that if one person buys a newspaper, that person will show it to two or three other people, and they will show it to two or three other people getting a total readership. So readership is different from circulation. I don't think 
there seems to be a trend that advertisers are looking more now toward total readership rather than total circulation. And then the internet adds to that. The internet uh, adds to total readership. Just curious, what were you able to do as a journalist in the 1960s that you don't think you'd be able to do now? I think basically cover stories from both sides. When I was working in, uh, I learned that first in Greenville, Mississippi, I worked for the Delta Democrat Times, which was owned by Hotting Carter. He was a famous publisher of the time, a Pulitzer Prize winner. And he always insisted, if you get a story, get both sides. Don't just write from one side. That's not going to do anybody good. Balanced coverage. And that went on through, I think, the 70s. May I ask you a question? Uh-huh. Okay. So what I think now is going on is there's a difference between being neutral and being objective. So if side A says the sky is neon green and side B says the sky is blue, <laughs> it, it's not... You're not supposed to be, side A said, you have to explain to the people what color the sky is first. Well, I don't, I don't think it really matters who's first as long as you have uh, a balance between the two. If, if you got a story about the color of the sky. Should there be a balance when one side is completely wrong is what I'm wondering. I think there, so, because if you're, if you're a fool, people will figure that out pretty fast. But so journalists, you don't think have a responsibility to say, this is the fact, and then here's, this is what side A says, size B says. I think they should. Okay. I think they should. And, and so, there are some news agencies that, that are continuing that tradition. I think the AP, the Associated Press, does a fairly good job in their balanced reporting. It's not always balanced, but it's fairly balanced. I think the Wall Street Journal is exceptional. Uh, I, think, I think the, the London um, Express is, uh, is really good. I think Le Mans in Paris is really good about uh, balanced coverage. Just curious, what is the one story you did in your youth that really sticks out in your mind or that you really, that you're proud of or just that's interesting to you? That I covered? Yes. I think three. Uh, one was in Greenville, Mississippi. I was working for the Delta Democrat, Delta Democrat Times. I wrote some stories exposing the local Ku Klux Klan. And they sent a guy out to shoot me. But he was a klutz. He shot himself on the foot instead. <laughs> That's a, you should write a, That is hilarious. But, <laughs> yeah. And that is also brave of you to uh, out the KKK. Well, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, I, I walked in the newsroom on Monday morning at 8 o'clock. And everybody looked at me kind of strangely. And I was saying, what's going on? And Jan Robertson, the state editor, came over and said, Barnes, don't you know? I said, what? Don't you know that you were the, the target of an assassination this morning? I said, what are you talking about? The doctor at the emergency room had called the city room and told them what happened. And he said, you'll never believe this. <laughs> the guy ended, his, he's not only shot himself in the foot, he shot his wife in the foot. His wife, he was, his wife, was, his wife was driving to work <laughs> and this guy was loading his pistol and it went off and shot him and his foot, and the round went through his foot and to his wife's foot. Oh, my God. Yeah, that... so, she, so she just drove directly to the hospital. <laughs> oh, my. Wow. That's, I would say, 
God spoke and God made his answer clear <laughs> in that. Like, <laughs> that kind of gives you an idea of, of, of the, the clan, the clan competence. <laughs> well, the, the, the second story, the second story I remember that I'm proud of, I went to work for, for UPI, United Press International in Boston. And I went up there on the weekend and I was supposed to go to work on Monday morning. So I knew a girl in Marblehead, so I called her, and she invited me to come up there for dinner, for lunch. So I went up there for lunch, and then she drove me, this was in, uh, she lived in Marblehead. She drove me down to Lynn, Lynn, Massachusetts, which is one of the northern suburbs of Boston, and uh, let me out, and I was waiting on my train to take me back to Boston. I was standing on the sidewalk, and this little man in a navy peacoat and a watch cap comes up to me and starts talking to me. I could tell that he was agitated. He was worried. He was depressed. He said, I'm, you know, I, he said, I just don't know what to do. And I said, you know, I, I tried to console him. I could tell he was having a bad, a bad day. So he finally said, can you lend me a dime? I want to make a phone calls. I said, sure. So I lent him a dime. He walked across the street to a drugstore to make his call. And 15 minutes later, the street is full of cops, Lynn cops, Boston cops, NBC cops, state police, FBI agents. They've all got submachine guns. I had just captured the Boston Strangler. Wow. <laughs> On film? And so I, I, I went over there and confirmed that it was Albert Salvo, the, the Strangler, and they had him in custody. So I went back across the street to the train station and called UPI, the newsroom. This was on Sunday afternoon. I wasn't due to come in until Monday morning. And I told him what had happened. And they said, what's your name? I said, Barnes Carr. I'm supposed to go to work for you tomorrow morning. And he said, I never heard of you. So they got the guy who hired me. He was in the office. They got him on the phone. And he uh, got on the phone and said, Barnes, is this a joke? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, indeed. So that was my first, my first world beat. My, nice. My, my first big scoop. And I walked in the, in the bureau Monday morning and I was instant hero. <laughs> oh my. Uh, and for people who are, our audience skews young. So for people who are too young, who is the Boston Strangler? Albert DeSalvo. He uh, murdered, as, as far as I know, 20 or 30 women, probably more in the Boston area in the 60s. And they never got a conviction because he was diagnosed as being, uh, as being schizophrenic. He had dual personalities. One side was normal, good old Albert, nice family man, good father, hard worker. The other side, the other personality would take over once in a while, and he would go out and rape and murder women, at least 20 or 30. Wow. Unbelievable. So, so they, they locked him up in uh, the uh, Massachusetts prison for the mentally insane at, uh, where was it? Wall, I'm trying to think of Walpole. That might be it. And he escaped. Wow. And that's, what, and that's when yours truly captured him. <laughs> that's a very, um, that is wild. And what's the, you said you had a third story. <laughs> yeah, the, the third story was my coverage of uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King. I was one of the reporters that covered the thing. Uh, I, was, I was off duty that day. And uh, I was taking a course at Memphis State which is now University of Memphis. And I was working, I was working on, a, on a story involving a, a federal agent 
So after my class that afternoon, I called the federal building looking for my, my contact, and they said, well, he's gone over to the Lorraine Motel. So I went over to the Lorraine, Lorraine Motel and arrived about, I would say, 10 minutes after King was shot. They had just hauled him, hauled him off to the hospital, and uh, I got to the phone and called in the office, and uh, they said that they had coverage, but come in the next morning and start working stories. But the interesting thing about this, I was uh, my old city editor from Greenville, Bill Sarter, was in Memphis working for Time Inc. Time Inc. owned Time Magazine and Life Magazine. Now, they had hired him to go to Memphis and investigate the possibility that the mafia was involved in the assassination of King. And so Bill hired me to help him do investigative research, you know, late in the afternoon after my, after my shift was over at the paper. And that went on for a long time. I interviewed lots of people, uh, police detectives, uh, civilians, people who had known King, people who had known a couple of accused killers. It went on and on for a long time, but we couldn't find anything definite regarding the mafia. I later met a retired Missouri State Police detective. He had retired and spent years on his own time investigating the assassination of King. And he said it was his theory that the assassin had heard that there was a bounty on King's head. And he wasn't very bright. And he went out and shot King, expecting to collect the bounty, but got caught. James Earl Ray was his name. Oh, and then he escaped to Zimbabwe, right? No, he, he, uh, he went to Canada and got a, a dead double passport. A dead double passport is where you go into a graveyard and find the name of someone about your age who died young, and you get the, the date of birth information, and you go downtown to the courthouse and get a copy of the birth certificate, and then you use that to get a driver's license and use the driver's license to get a passport. It's called a dead double passport. He got a dead double passport in Canada and fled to uh, London. And he had plans to uh, sign on with as a white mercenary in uh, South Africa. But he got grabbed. Scott Monyard grabbed him. Wow, that is very intense. Like uh, around that time, there was a lot going on. Yeah, I remember when I was uh, when I was uh, growing up in the '60s and working as a reporter in the '60s. I, I remember you turned on the radio or the television, and it was a major story, a major tragedy, a major disaster somewhere in the world every day, every day. Well, thank you so much for coming with us. And once you write your biography, you should absolutely come back again. <laughs> I had a great time, and it was one of the best books. I read. I was like, this is, it felt like reading a James Bond thriller. Yeah, well, these had a lot of strange characters in it, a lot of weird people. You know, Sidney Riley and Boris Samenkoff were both drug addicts. They thought they, <laughs> you know, Sidney thought he was Jesus. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so um, I, I really enjoyed it. And well, I'm sure. Well, th thanks for asking me. The, the pleasure has been all mine. And I would just like to put in a quick plug for my publishers. Uh, in New York, it's Slaver and Hancock at Pegasus Books. And in London, it's Amberley Books. I can put in a, a plug for them because they have been really, really good in uh, reading and editing and promotion. I couldn't have a 
two better publishers. And, and of course, my agent, Andrew Lowney, I think he's the hardest working man in literature. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, every week he comes to our podcast, like I get about four different emails from him with, uh, and I'm overwhelmed because I can't read, possibly read the books before, <laughs> to see which one. It's like, just give try. Just one would be good, but it's a lot. He does a lot of work. And um, oh, yes. yeah. And, and, and Andrew's good about pursuing all possibilities. My first book, uh, he's now pursuing possibilities for foreign rights. What was your first book? Operation Whisper. It's the story of uh, a New York couple, Morris and Lona Cohen, who were Soviet agents in America. And they were the first spies to steal a complete diagram of the first atomic bomb. That was in 1945. Oh. Uh, credit has been given to uh, Klaus Fuchs. He also stole a diagram of the bomb, or he had a diagram of the bomb. But the Cohen's diagram, according to Russian documents I found, the Cohen's got their document to, that got their drawing to Moscow first. So I say they were the first. It's called Operation Whisper. That is also a cool story. Um, we should have you back again next year to talk about that. <laughs> okay, sure. Anytime. Yeah. Thank I've you so much. This. I've enjoyed this a lot. And this was a very interesting subject. I l and I love the way you wrote all the mystery and intrigue. It was very, very well done. So thank you for coming. Thanks very much. All right. Have a good evening. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.